Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I'm really happy with the decision today. And uh, I think it's uh, it's been a while, and uh, but I'm happy it's here. And uh, right now I'm going to just try to focus on uh, recovering and not worrying about having to go back to prison or... You know, just struggling. So thank you so much. Well, that is Omar Khadr reacting to a decision today from an Alberta judge that his sentence has run its course. Now, you you could look at the calendar and say, well, okay, an eight-year sentence was imposed on him in 2010. It's now 2019. I guess that adds up. But the thing is, the judge freed him on bail in 2015. And this was pending his appeal of that conviction in the United States. So in that sense, kind of the clock stopped ticking. But Chief Justice Mary Murrow says the Youth Criminal Justice Act gives judges flexibility to consider bail conditions as part of a sentence. And with that in mind, she has ruled that Cotter has served his time. So what do we make of all of this? Joining us uh, for some thoughts is someone who's followed uh, all of this very closely, Scott Newark, uh, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor. He's an adjunct professor of the TRSS program, School of Criminology, Simon Fraser University, also former security policy advisor to the Ontario government as well as the federal government. Scott, great to have you back with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Rob. All right, so what does this signify to you? Well, first of all, like I think of uh, a lot of Canadians probably feel they're reminded of that a country and western song by Toby Keith that says, how can I miss you when you never go away? <laughs> okay. uh, you know, here we are again. Um, I, don't dis- I don't have a problem really with the outcome in the sense of the judge saying, look, uh, you know, this is effectively, you have served your sentence, albeit in a different form. I don't really have a problem with that. But the thing that really needs to be kept in mind about this is that this unique situation that he was in that you were describing, Okay, it only occurred because of what he and his lawyers did. When he was in custody in Canada, he could have applied for parole. I remember writing about it at the time, and he never did. Instead of, and he would have, I'm quite sure he would have been granted uh, parole because he'd been a, you know, a, a prisoner who complied with all those conditions. There were no problems with him. But instead of doing that, if you remember, they launched this appeal against the original conviction, which he pled guilty to and signed an affidavit that said that, you know, he did it and there was no pressure applied on him, okay, but so he apply, he applies for bail, and that's important uh, to keep in mind, it's not being reported. It isn't just that some judge granted him bail, he applied for bail. Mm-hmm. So in other words, he cre- he and his lawyers, and I want to emphasize that because I'm quite sure this is something, a, a quotation mark strategy designed by his lawyers, okay, they created this legal oddity that he found himself in, where, as you say, once he gets out on bail, the, the clock on the sentence stops ticking. That's the traditional and logical practice. So while I don't have a problem with the end result of, in effect, you know, recognizing that the time that he spent on bail and the conditions, I agree, were almost identical to what they would have been on parole, I think. Okay, 
people do need to keep in mind that this whole situation was created. And in my opinion, it was created as a public relations exercise because it was more, you know, oh, the poor victim, so that he could get that $10.5 million paycheck, which he ultimately did. Okay. And now that all that is done, okay, so how do I, uh, like, pretend that everything is okay? And, uh, you know, so they go to court, and without getting into all the details of it, the judge analyzes, and it's not a youth court judge, by the way, it's a superior court judge, uh, analyzes the situation and decides that it's Section 94 of the Youth Criminal Justice Act has enough vague sort of provisions in it that will allow her to, in effect, say, I'm reviewing your sentence and I'm going to give a direction that it's now over. I just started to read the uh, the judgment. I found it online. And I'm not 100% sure that I would agree with the legal interpretation, but as I say, I think the the end result is something that is uh, is is not something that people should have a problem with because this guy literally has done the time. Well, yeah, I mean, there's probably really no scenario where Omar Khadr goes back to jail, is there? I don't think so. Um, at least not for anything that has happened uh, so far. And it is fair to point out um, that um, since he was returned to Canada, which, by the way, would not have happened had it not been for actions taken by the Harper government to say that we would give favorable consideration under the International Transfer Fenders Act to take him back here, because we didn't have to, okay? But he has been completely, to my knowledge, completely compliant with all of the laws and procedures in, in Canada. So he should be given credit for that as well, too. There are other provisions under uh, uh, what are known as terrorism peace bonds that could be brought against them, but it doesn't sound to me at all that they have the grounds for that. So, I no, I do not yeah. see a circumstance uh, of him uh, uh, going back to, uh, to jail. Uh, I'll tell you one thing I wouldn't be surprised about is that they continue this appeal in the United States, and if they happen to get it, uh, guess what? Uh, there may be another lawsuit filed against the government of Canada for our horrific, uh, uh, you know, uh, imposition of the sentence uh, under the agreement. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, Omar Khadr was obviously, he was appealing his, his sentence in the U.S., but there were those who, who think in the U.S. that he got off too easy. Yes, that that's quite true. There are definitely, I, I speak with uh, lots of people that are familiar with this case and that uh, really think that the uh, the deal that was ultimately struck should not have been struck. I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that because this was a kid, and people forget this, this was a kid who was inculcated into this Islamist death cult by his parents. Okay, I think our society as a whole failed those kids of that family because we knew what those parents were up to. Yeah. All right, and we didn't do anything to intervene. The one, the one thing I would have liked to have seen in the judgment, though, was uh, for the judge to have said, well, okay, you're in this unique situation. You know, we're going to say that uh, you've, in effect, served your sentence, but you're only here applying for this and all of the other applications you've had in court because of the situation that you and your lawyers created. So I'm going to give you the order. And I'll end your sentence, but I'm also going to impose an order of costs that you and your lawyers have to pay. Let's say $10.5 million. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a nice nice round number. <laughs> it might have gone over well with people, not so much with, with Omar Connor, I suspect. Well, I suppose, though, you know, now that he's released, he'll have time to register and run as a candidate for the Liberal Party. Well, I suppose he would. Yeah. Uh, look, I mean, we, we obviously hope that he is uh, indeed on, on the straight and narrow and working to... to and seems to be. It seems to be. And, yeah. you know, looking to be a productive member of, of society, and that's what we hope for. One thing that is, is concerning, and I know he's been fighting to have these bail conditions lifted for some time, involved allowing him to have contact with his sister. When we talk about the ideology, as uh, some yeah. me- 
members of the Cotter family. That certainly applies here. Is, is that of concern to you? Um, it, it would be in any kind of circumstance, because with people like this, one of the things you want to try to do is prevent them from having contact with people that were involved in their uh, radicalization or in the ongoing radicalization. And his sister, Zainab, um, previously uh, married, as you may recall, to Joshua Boyle, who's on yeah. trial in Ottawa starting today, um, she is among the most uh, outspoken and defiant and narcissistic uh, of the Islamist uh, members of uh, his family. And so she's off in, uh, I believe it's in uh, Georgia, in Central uh, Asia. So who knows whether or not the, uh, uh, there will be contact with them. And just because he's out of custody, uh, he still has to apply for passport. There's grounds that they might use to not give him one. Mm-hmm. So, but the point of it is, is he is returning to the circumstances of, generally speaking, the lawful conditions of all Canadians in Canada. All right. Scott, great insight. Appreciate making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. No problem, Rob. Talk Take to you later. Bye-bye. All right. There you go. Former uh, Crown Prosecutor Scott Newark. Uh, he's an adjunct professor in the TRSS program, the School of Criminology at Simon Fraser University. Also former security policy advisor to the federal government, also the Ontario government. So his thoughts on what's happened here. It is unusual in the sense that he was on bail, so technically the clock should have stopped ticking on his sentence. Had he been out on parole, that would have been part of the sentence. The clock would have kept running, uh, and therefore the sentence would have logically expired. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.